All right. Well, you you may not have noticed when you came in, but there is a um, a small piece of furniture or two behind me that has been switched out. Um, the uh, little white stick with a um, platform on top of it has been moved, and uh, we have a new pulpit and communion table. Um, so. I wanted to, uh, I've had a few questions about it, and I was actually planning this morning to uh, just briefly uh, kind of talk about this, because there is actually, uh, there's a a reason for why uh, churches have what we have in terms of our furniture and why it looks the way it does and those kinds of things. So I'm not going to take all of our time up with this, hopefully, but I did want to kind of um, give us some things to think about. And, you know, it's not just uh, 400 pounds of wood, which it is, uh, but, <laughs> um, but there's some, there are some significant reasons behind it all. Uh, so I wanted to talk about that briefly and just kind of give us the origins of this Um, uh, the church's use of pulpits and tables and what it all signifies and why it is important uh, to us. So um, can anyone think of anywhere in Scripture, and I'll narrow it down to at least the Old Testament, uh, where uh, you see a, um, a prominent mention of something akin to a pulpit? The altar, okay. Temple. Okay. Good. Yep, so this was uh, Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 8.4, well, Ezra was a scribe, and he stood um, upon, and the text says, he stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for this purpose, and he proclaimed the law to the people. So he preached from a pulpit, and... um, and that's really probably the only time that term is used in the Bible. Um, but we get this idea that preaching was being done from a raised place and something was built specifically for uh, that purpose. Uh, then, um, moving along in church history in the third century, um, there was a mention of the churches. Churches started to move into uh, larger gathering places and uh, buildings that were designated specifically for the worship of the church, and so pulpits became uh, very much a staple to what the church was doing. And for some, it had significant purpose. For others, it was simply a matter of uh, kind of um, uh, a necessity of usage, a a place to speak from, a lectern, if you will, uh, because uh, there was preaching. Um, but it, there came a time in history when the pulpit was moving from the center of the worship space off to the side. Now, what is the significance of a pulpit being at the center of a worship space? Any thoughts? What's that? Okay, it's where God's word is proclaimed from. So what are, we, um, what are we trying to communicate by that? 
That's the primary purpose, right? That's the primary focus of our gathering, to hear the proclamation of the word of God, which not only says something of its centrality in our space, but also its uh, size in our space. Um, that it is not, um, it's not something that gets uh, tucked away in the corner or uh, that is uh, hard to identify, uh, but it has a prominent place. When we gather together, we see it. Uh, it's kind of hard to miss. I hope uh, you didn't miss that walking in today. Um, <coughs> and this was something that uh, in time getting into the 5th century, 6th century, it started to get moved over to the side because the Roman Catholic Church was introducing the idea of the altar. And the altar became the central place of worship where um, Christ was wrongly, assumingly being sacrificed each and every week upon the altar. Um, And so while uh, the Reformation came about, Uh, the reformers very quickly reintroduced the idea of the pulpit being the central focus of a worship space uh, because, again, of this idea uh, that um, the word is central. And so it wasn't just um, moved to the middle of the space, but they became larger and larger, and the idea became uh, similar to the reason why, in some traditions, ministers also wear uh, robes. The idea was to hide the man so that the word would be central. That the idea wasn't um, that there was a person that we were um, there specifically to hear from and, and listen to as a man, but rather the idea is that we are hearing directly from the word of God. And so the less conspicuous the person was, the better off. And so that's why you see especially the early reformers and the Puritans, they wore uh, clerical Robes, and they um, found themselves behind very large pulpits. And then the raising of uh, the pulpit as well. This idea is that it's above the people. The word of God is being preached over us and upon us. Um, and so you've seen uh, through history, this came into prominence. It has been for uh, several hundred years. And in some ways, we see some of that shifting gears again and going back the other way, where uh, the, you see pulpits getting smaller and down to music stands or not at all, or little coffee tables where notes are rested while um, the, the, the man becomes the one who, um, who asks for the attention. Um, and so that's, that's part of all of this. Why do... Why do uh, so someone asked me once, why don't you move around some while you preach? Um, one, I don't know how that would go. Um, it could be a disaster. Um, but two, um, that's a part of all of this in my mind, uh, that we want to focus all of our attention on the word being proclaimed and not, uh, you know, he went over there to make that point to those people in some certain way. And then he shifted over here and got my attention there. And it's been argued that in a culture like ours with a lot of uh, images and noise and all of these things constantly bombarding us uh, through media and all these sorts of things that we need to find new ways to keep attention. Um, so <clears throat> that's one reason why. And I'm not um, uh, 
this is ways we've thought about it. Um, there's no uh, thus saith the Lord on this. So if churches decide to remove their pulpits, they're more than welcome to. And I don't think it's sinful. Um, however, I think it communicates something that um, we would rather communicate otherwise. Um, so anyway, uh, part of the pulpit obviously is the table. And the table where we commune with one another, we commune with God as we come together to enjoy uh, the supper laid before us. And so we have a proclamation of the gospel, the word, and we have a physical representation of the gospel in uh, the supper. And so the significance of the table uh, has always been a part of God's church and um, should play a prominent role um, in the display. So. Uh, that's kind of a, a short, very short history. There's actually books written on this. There's books written about everything. Um, and the history of uh, the pulpit and why it, why it is what it is and why different traditions think differently about it. Uh, but as a people uh, who are rooted in a tradition of the Protestant Reformation, um, this, is, uh, this is how we, we understand that. So maybe that will help you think through um, some of those things, uh, why uh, we, we have this massive, nearly immovable structure <laughs> on our platform now. So any uh, questions about that before we press on? Yeah. Yeah, so in, uh, especially in Presbyterian churches and uh, more historic ones, um, the pulpits are very high. Um, the the ministers have to walk up a flight of stairs to get to them oftentimes. And that has always been the idea in those um, settings, is that the word of God is being preached down on, onto the people. Uh, we're receiving it from on high. Um, you saw the same when the, like choirs were moved to the back, uh, that it wasn't a performance, but it was the, the songs being sung down onto the people. Uh, with the people of God. So you'd see, if there were choirs, they were up in a loft behind everybody. Um, so you see that in a lot of historic churches too. Yeah. It's the difference between an authoritative proclamation of something true versus a conversational. Uh, we're kind of gathering around the table to share ideas. Um, so... Our goal is to proclaim what God has said is true versus having a conversation about it. And um, there's a place for that where we want to talk about that and have discussion on those. But God has made the preaching of his word prominent in his church. And in that, we are trying to say, thus saith the Lord, um, not thus saith, here are my ideas. <laughs> so, yeah, Tyler. Did I move it by myself? No. Actually, I did a pretty good job of uh, supervising the whole project yesterday, though. Uh, I'm usually a very good supervisor on projects like that. So it came in many pieces. Uh, the man who built this is from a sister church in Jessup, Emmanuel Baptist Church in Jessup. Um, we met earlier in the year and kind of drew up some plans, and he went to work, and he did a fantastic job. I'm very impressed with his work. So if you want tables built for your house or anything like that, I can point you in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. I was going to let you pick that out. <laughs> All right. Well, <coughs> in some ways that kind of fits into um, 
our ongoing discussion here in Sunday School about uh, the church and culture and some distinctive elements of the church within the culture. Um, But something I wanted to uh, talk about today is... So we've talked about the, the church itself and the gathering of the church, uh, the uh, enjoyment of what God has given us to, um, to have as a people of God when we participate in the redemptive kingdom of God in the midst of the common kingdom. And specifically last week we addressed the issue of the Lord's Day and our gathering as his people on the Lord's Day uh, to participate in the redemptive kingdom. Um, but I want to I want to move um, I want to move back out uh, into the world a bit as we think about our interaction with the world. Um, so we've we've talked about culture specifically. What is culture and how do we define it and what types of culture there are? We've tried to talk about uh, a Christian uh, worldview in terms of how to interact with culture, and then we moved into the church and the distinctiveness of the church within the culture. Uh, but now I want to step back out into the world. So as the church is gathered, we're worshiping, we're participating in the redemptive kingdom. But then we have to step back out into our lives, into our work. I always think about this in terms of um, when Jesus uh, took three of his disciples uh, to the Mount of Transfiguration. And they gathered there and they saw Jesus uh, transfigured. They saw his divinity as he uh, was communicating with the patriarchs. And what did, uh, what did Peter, of all people, of course, Peter had something to say about all that. What did he want to do? Yeah, he said, can we build a tent here and just kind of stay here? Why did he want to stay there? Why did Peter want to stay on the mountain? Exactly. The closest thing to heaven he has ever seen. Uh, The most glorious sight, the most glorious experience of Peter's life at that point would have been right there at the Mount of Transfiguration. As he saw Jesus glorified, as he saw Moses and Abraham, as these things were going on, uh, Peter, no doubt, was speaking on behalf of the others who were with him. Can we just camp and stay right here and not go away from this? And in some way, I hope that we experience that same thing Peter does when we gather for worship corporately. That as we're hearing the word of God, we're with his people, as we're being transformed, as we're hearing the word that is working within us, experiencing the nearness of God through the Holy Spirit, all of these things going on as we gather corporately, um, that there is a sense of, I want this to be my life. I want to camp out there. I don't want to have to go out from here because I know what awaits me. And there are trials and difficulties and sufferings and all of these things before us. Um, But what happens immediately after they leave the mountain of transfiguration? Where do they go? Well, you picture they're on a mountain, so they have to descend. And they descend into a valley. And what do they encounter in the valley? Anyone remember? Okay. Um, The culture itself certainly would have been filled with idol worship, but there was a specific experience. Something happened as soon as they got off the mountain. 
Yes, good. There was a boy who was demon-possessed, and the, the um, disciples who were left behind, they were having a problem. What was it? Do you remember? Yeah, they couldn't cast it out. This one is so strong, they said, that we can't cast this demon out. And so Jesus came along and, of course, uh, took care of uh, the problem. However, there's a picture here for us. We move from the most glorious event in the lives of these disciples when they see Christ um, high and lifted up in his divine essence. And immediately afterwards, their encounter is in a valley with demons. And in some ways, we need to see this as our story each and every week. We gather and experience the redemptive kingdom of God as we gather with God's people. We see Christ high and lifted up. Uh, This is a time where our hearts and our minds are focused on Christ. And hopefully, uh, by God's help, we're able to set aside our concerns and our our trials in, in everyday life. Set these things aside and focus everything on Him. So all of our thought is on the same kind of thing that Peter was thinking. I just want to camp out here. I want this to be where I'm at. Because we know as we step outside and as we move along in our daily lives, we are going to be at battle once again with the demons of the world. There's a difficult uh, way of life we have before us. Jesus didn't promise us anything other than that. And so when we move from the mountain to the valley, what then is distinct about us as individuals? That example alone shows us that Christ's um, purpose was not to take us out of the world and isolate us from all of our neighbors. He brought the disciples right back down into it to prove a point. And he prayed that same point in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. I'm not asking you to take them out of this world, but to protect them while they are in it. And so the question is, there. There needs to be a distinctness about our lives as we live within this world. And what does that look like? And that comes out in the distinctive ethic of the Christian life. Uh, The way that we live our lives as individuals and as families, that looks very different uh, from uh, from the world. Um, So... How should Christians in their various roles within the world conduct themselves toward God and interact with one another, their neighbors? A few things uh, to say here. The first is that I want to think about the ethic of forgiveness that transcends justice. Pursuing justice is rightfully one of the primary tasks of the common kingdom, right? That is one of the roles, the primary roles uh, that every uh, society has seen of a government. Um, The Noahic covenant teaches us that pursuing justice is a central task. How is that? What is, so the Noahic covenant, God made a covenant with Noah and all of his descendants, which includes you and I, uh, that he would never destroy the earth by flood again. 
But why did he destroy the earth by flood? And how is this, uh, this idea of justice being played out in that instance? Okay, uh, leading up to that time, we see that all of creation had become corrupt. And what does it say about God? What does he say? Or uh, the text says he was thinking something about creation. Yeah, he was sorry, or some versions say he repented of ever creating it in the first place. Now, it doesn't mean that God came along not knowing that was going to happen, and he had all of these doubts and was kind of wringing his hands and trying to decide what to do. Uh, but it is a way of explaining to us that there was, um, there was something very displeasing about all of creation to God. And it was that corruption day by day had continued to increase upon the land. And so, what kind of justice do we see in that? Well, it's divine justice, but there's a principle here. What is the principle of justice that's being doled out uh, with Noah and his descendants? Good. Um, So, on the level of justice, we see the idea of um, uh, proportionate justice. And we see this play out uh, throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. Um, that's commonly summarized. Uh, we see it elsewhere in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so the idea is a proportionate justice. If you do this, the same will be done to you. So the punishment fits the crime. It's a one-for-one trade-off. So if you uh, steal a man's ox, the punishment is not that you are killed, uh, but rather that you have to pay back something um, that is proportionate. And that is generally how um, properly functioning justice systems in the common kingdom are supposed to work, right? That's how our justice system was at least established to work, was that it's proportionate. Now, because man is involved and corruption is involved and sinful hearts are involved, that's not always the case. But in theory, that is the principle. And that is the role of the common kingdom and particularly the governing elements of the common kingdom. But something comes in the midst of that flood. And God goes to a man. He knows he's going to destroy the earth. And he goes to a man and he says, build an ark in the midst of the desert. Be mocked, be ridiculed, all of these things. And you and your family will be saved along with two of every kind of animal. God, in the midst of offering justice, also offers grace and hope. Just like he did in the garden. He was cursing Adam and Eve and the serpent, but in Genesis 3.15, he offers hope. From you, woman, will come a seed, and he will crush the serpent's head, and, he, and you will bruise his heel. It's Christ. It's the first mention of the gospel. So Noah and his descendants on the ark is a picture of the gospel. Um, 
the ark itself is a type of Christ. The early Christians, um, in, uh, there, there have been uh, findings in archaeological digs. The early Christians often drew pictures of a cross, and on top of the cross, they drew a picture of the ark because they understood that Christ was as the ark in the midst of fallenness and brokenness and sin and corruption and the judgment of God, we have safety in the ark of Christ. And so the, uh, the picture I think we can think of is uh, that we as God's people are proclaiming and shouting and pleading with people to get on the ark, to climb on board and ride with Christ uh, that we would be safe from all that is falling down around us. And so Jesus takes all of this and he reorients the thinking of the people in the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say what? What does he say? Mm -hmm. So if a man asks you to walk a mile with him, instead walk two. Um, uh, And the idea is if your enemy curses you, you in turn need to bless him. If you are, um, I like the King James language, if you are smoten, if you are slapped on one cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. This is radically different thinking than the common kingdom's idea of justice, right? There's forgiveness in the midst of it. The forgiveness that was offered to Noah and his descendants as members of the redemptive kingdom in the midst of the common kingdom. Now, uh, we should know that there was nothing special about Noah. In fact, his actions nearly immediately after they got off the ark prove that to us, right? He got off the ark, they built an altar, and they worshiped, and then what did Noah do? He got drunk and naked, and his son was killed for seeing his father's nakedness. Uh, So there's nothing super holy about Noah. It wasn't him in his uh, person, in his character, in his nature, excuse me, that God saw him and said, uh, this is a man that I need to save in the midst of all this justice. It was by God's grace alone that he decided, I'm going to save Noah and his descendants because I'm a gracious and forgiving God. Someone had their hand up. Is it? Oh, Charlie, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, in, in fact, Jesus is being mocked all along the way, right? Do something. Why are you not, if, if this is so unjust, why are you not pleading for justice? Why are you not crying out that justice be done? Um, instead, he's calling for their forgiveness, So Jesus announces that this principle of justice is is not to apply in the the, uh, redemptive kingdom. It does apply in the common kingdom, and it should, it ought to, but it does not apply in the redemptive kingdom. Instead, an ethic of forgiveness and reconciliation should characterize the citizens of the redemptive kingdom. 
and that portrays the gospel itself. This is why the disciples had a very hard time wrapping their minds around all that Jesus was saying about forgiveness. If someone comes to me and asks for forgiveness seven times, is that enough times to forgive them? And Jesus says, no, you forgive them 70 times seven times. In other words, you continue to forgive them. Now, it's another discussion for another time, but there is a difference between forgiving and trusting. But forgiving, that should characterize the church. And so the question probably, hopefully, comes up in your mind, well, what about something like church discipline? Isn't that about justice? Look at, um, look at Matthew 18 with me. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So, is this about justice? What is it about, if not justice? Repentance and reconciliation, right? These are the marks of the redemptive kingdom. Why do I go to someone who has sinned against me, and instead of demanding that there be repayment for the way I've been wronged, I instead offer forgiveness, because these are the marks of the redemptive kingdom. So if, uh, just for a very simple uh, example, if um, Sam punches me in the eye, it's not going to hurt, I assure you that, but if he were to do it, um, should the proper response be that I punch him back in the eye? Well, according to the common kingdom, the world's form of justice, that is the response, right? Right? You hit me, I hit you back. The ethic that Jesus gives us is you hit me, you're a brother in Christ, I need to come to you and tell you that you have sinned against me and offer forgiveness. And if you say in return, if Sam were to say, um, well, you deserved it, so take it like a man and move on, um, then I have an obligation to not say, fine, let's settle this right here and now. Um, we're going to go outside, and we all know what the outcome of that would be. <laughs> Instead, I go to two or three others who are trustworthy, who are objective, and I'm able to say to them, let's go talk to our brother, and I want to explain my side of things, and we'll give him an opportunity to explain his side of things, and you two or three others can be objective witnesses and help us to settle the matter. And in the end, it's decided that he surely should not have done that, and he still needs to repent of the sin and be reconciled. He still determines, I'm not going to. He deserved every bit of it. I should have hit him harder. 
Um, and so then it's brought to the church. The idea all along the way is not that justice is doled out. The idea is that there is reconciliation. But why do we struggle so hard with this idea of forgiveness and reconciliation? What is it about that that we, even as Christians, we struggle with so hard? Why? Sure. Two of our favorite words, well, our one favorite word as kids is fair, right? That's not fair. That's built into us, right? And of course, as good Christian parents, you say, you don't want what's fair, right? You've all said that. Lee? (laughs) Sure. All things equal, right? Yeah, we're functional communists. We want it all leveled out. (laughs) Excellent. So the Lord answers all of this and says, don't repay evil for evil. Repay evil with good. Vengeance is mine. In other words, justice has been paid in Christ for the Christian, and justice will be paid in judgment for the non-Christian. All things will be made right in Christ. And so you, my people, need not take upon yourselves this idea of always seeking justice. In fact, Paul gives us a whole different ethic on this as well in saying, why not rather be defrauded than turn to the civil system of justice to settle your disputes for you? Well, this is in the midst of him talking about Christians and Corinth were suing each other. They were going to civil magistrates to settle their differences. And Paul says, why are you doing this? You have the church. Work this out among yourselves within the church. And in the end, if you can't or if it's not settled, why not rather take the wrong than than go out before the world and display that God's people are unable uh, to find reconciliation? This isn't the way of Christ. This isn't the way of his people. The way of his people is to give of themselves sacrificially. This is radically countercultural. This is radically counter to every system of justice and culture and society. Um, when we forgive someone, what we are doing and what we are saying is, I will suffer the wrong. I will not demand repayment. That is forgiveness. It's not a demand for repayment. It's a simple offer to be reconciled and to drop it and to move on, to plant it in the ground and move away from it. Someone will be wronged when there is sin. The repayment is not eye for an eye. The repayment is I offer you forgiveness and I will grant it if you are seeking it. And so this is very different from the way that uh, the common kingdom functions with, uh, in terms of wrongs being done and justice being doled out. Did you have something to say? Yeah, Jesus himself makes that very point leading up to all of this. Uh, if you're going to confront someone in sin, he calls us to do something with ourselves first. Consider the log in your own eye before you seek to remove the speck in your brother's eye that I am forced to look inwardly before I start to deal with those things done outwardly by others. Do you have something, Joe? 
Yeah, I think the principle that we, we need to um, focus on is that uh, we are called to offer forgiveness in all of these circumstances. There certainly is a responsibility on the other party, though, to, uh, to come and to, um, and to ask for that forgiveness as well. Now, um, that plays out in a lot of different ways, and depending on what the circumstances are is certainly at play there as well. Um, but the idea is that I, uh, regardless of whether or not that person repents and we're reconciled, until there really is a work of reconciliation done, there's still an offense that needs to be dealt with. Um, but am I going to carry around anger and bitterness and uh, ill will toward this person because we haven't had that conversation yet? My goodness, I hope not. Um, because I know there are many things I've done before the Lord that I've not repented of, and he doesn't continue in... Um, and holding those things against me. Um, however, I am still, in like manner, called to seek repentance and reconciliation. That my relationship with God, like my relationship with others, should be restored through that process of repentance and restoration. So, um, we're out of time. We need to break for uh, worship. We'll, um, we'll pick this up next time we meet for this class. Um, in the next two weeks, we have some uh, visiting pastors uh, who will be sharing with us. Um, several of us are going to Orlando next week for the Gospel Coalition Conference uh, to be refreshed and to be helped. Um, so we'll have uh, 10 of us, 10 pastors, um, and uh, we're going to go to Orlando. We're going to uh, enjoy our time there. So some of those men will be here to share with us um, and they're going to preach, um, and uh, you will be blessed by their ministry as well. Anytime we have guest pastors in town, I like to get them before you so you can hear from them too. So let's pray, and we will uh, prepare our hearts for worship. Father, thank you again for this time, for your day, and for the opportunity we've had to discuss um, the, the great principles of your word as they apply to our lives. May we be faithful to hear your word and to be doers of your word. And specifically in this ethic we've discussed this morning, that we can do the very countercultural thing, and our lives not be um, our lives not be concerned and consumed with seeking justice, but rather that our lives be consumed with offering and granting forgiveness. That we are seekers of reconciliation, and that we live whenever possible at peace with all men. May you do this, Lord, for your glory and for the good of your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.